This is KPFA or KPFB, Berkeley or KFCF in Fresno, kpfa.org. It's 3 o'clock, time now for Stone's Throw on Cover to Cover with Jennifer Stone. Please do stay tuned. Happy ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school, get your money every Friday, happy endings are the rule, so divide up in darkness from the ones who walk in light light them up boys there's your picture drop the shadows out of sight this is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw, and today is November the 20th, 2-0 November, yes. <laughs> I want to thank you for the, the birthday cards, folks. It isn't my birthday yet. My birthday is coming up. It's on a wonderful day. It's the day when Nicole Sawaya returns to KPFA, only this time she's the big boss. She's... Uh, Head of everything now, she's not just our manager, she's um, head of Pacifica. Anyway, Nicole is coming on the 5th of December, and I'm going to think of something. It's my birthday present, having Nicole return. I'll think of something wild and funny, but anyway, I'll see KPFA listeners at the Holiday Crafts Fair. That's coming up the following weekend. That's the weekend of, let's see, is that 8 and 9? Right, Saturday and Sunday, the following weekend. And I'll have my tapes and books. And uh, I hope to have something fascinating, something fun and wild and new and crazy. But anyway, I'll be there just to the, just to the left as you come in, right past where you buy your tickets. Uh, I was hoping yes, I wanted to argue. I, I think this year we'll have to argue about Hillary again. I have a directive here from KPFA management. It says here that we must be careful never to tell anyone in the listening audience whom to vote for. I believe that's whom. I actually uh, wouldn't dream of such a thing. Uh, I even hesitate to tell people to vote at all. I had one year back in the 60s when I didn't vote. Didn't even go to the polls. Uh, that was a mistake, but, you know, we all of us fall off the edge. Uh, it's so fascinating. Uh, electoral politics, such nonsense. I was watching the BBC last night. Uh, I think it was uh, Masterpiece Theater. Yes, there is a show called The Amazing Mrs. Pritchard. I don't really vote for Mrs. Pritchard either. She, uh, it's, it's a kind of a rehearsal for, uh, let's say a woman prez or a woman prime minister. The gag in the show is that a woman who's a very effective, uh, store manager, she looks at the politicians and she says, well, I could do better than that. So she gets in the game and she gets elected the prime minister of England. Ha ha. And <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't want to give away the uh, plot or anything because you might want to watch it. You might even enjoy it. Uh, actually, it had some of my favorite actresses in it. Um, and it was more interesting than I expected, more dignified than I thought. But uh, it just, of course, presents the case for a woman. But in this case, it's a woman who um, is what we would call just an ordinary uh, uh, let's see, a woman of the people, you know. The thing is that, of course, she's completely effective and efficient. The difficulty is, of course, that she runs into a snag. And the great dilemma presented by the plot, now this one I'd like your help with, uh, it turns out that there is a skeleton in her closet. It has something to do with her husband, the uh, first gentleman, I believe he would be called, and she comes up against a wall, and her decision, uh, she doesn't seem to be able to have a third choice. She has only two choices. She has to either divorce her husband or resign her office. And I thought about that for the longest time, and I thought, I wonder what she will do. You'll have to watch the show to find out. But I, I wondered what Hillary, what Hillary Clinton would do in a case like that. Um, I called a friend and asked, and she said, oh, oh, she would resign. Uh, she wouldn't ever divorce him. And I thought, well, if it came down to one or the other, what do you think Hillary would choose if it were really one or the other? Would she do without Bill and go on to be the prez? Or would she get a divorce and have her career? I just wonder. Never mind. I thank you for your kind letters, and I will try to answer some of them. As I keep telling everyone, if I should drop dead without answering my mail, do forgive me. I I never seem to get around to these things. Uh, one of these days, when I get my desk cleared, yes, uh, I, I figured it out the other day. It's a way I have to go on living forever because I haven't finished doing my, my little chores. I haven't answered my mail. It's a way of staying alive. You know how that goes. Uh, once everything is taken care of, then we have no excuse to stick around. Never mind. Oh, oh, oh it's turkey time, folks. Here comes the big turkey. Oh, you won't catch me with my fist up a turkey's posterior. Pardon me. None of that talk. Jennifer, uh, not this year. I've had enough dead birds, if you'll pardon my being facetious. Uh, I thought I'd go nuts the last week or ten days. All this oil, oil, oil gives me a nightmare. I'm waking up screaming. All those poor creatures, all those dead birds, I... I uh, talked to some friends out in Bolinas, and uh, what was it the governor said? He said, you know, it's not just heartbreaking, it's outrageous. That's right, Arnold, that's right. The line that, that uh, hit me right between the eyes seared my cerebral cortex. Yes, the worst quote came from some pundit on... Uh, one of those TV shows, the one that Belva Davis has, that laid-back show, um, Northern California Today or something like that. Uh, 
Anyway, there was this mellow dude who sighed, and he delivered his uh, verdict on the oil spill in San Francisco Bay. He said, quote, mm, Looks like crab season will be a little late this year. That one knocked me over. The truth is, uh, <laughs> it reminded me of a horrible old song we used to sing. Yes, um, Mrs. Otis regrets. Yes, Mrs. Otis regrets. She's unable to lunch today. The song was about a woman who was going to be executed the next day. Yes, Mrs. Otis regrets. She is unable. Yes. To have a crab salad. Anyway, uh, I have tried to remain calm, not to do any screaming. I did do some swearing. Uh, I went out on my balcony all alone. Uh, I walked up and down my balcony looking at Mount Tam. Uh, I, I walked up and down the length of my uh, back little back garden there, my little one-bedroom apartment, sits on the third floor of the Harriet Tubman Terrace here in Berkeley, and I like to look at Mount Tam in the evening over in Marin, and I couldn't help but uh, quiver and shake a little bit. I just can't believe. I lived in Bolinas for a year and a half, and as I'm sure you've seen on the news, the folks out there they tried to put a boom across the Bolinas Lagoon. They tried to save some of the bits. I, When I lived out there, I remember I stayed in a house up on the top of what we call the Little Mesa. It looked down on uh, uh, Stinson Beach, uh, the little sea drift place. Um, and, you know, you can look out to the Farallon Islands. Apparently the oil has hit that beach. I heard a... Uh, another comment, something about uh, in this age of technology, we're using diapers to soak up the oil on that beach. I remember back in the 80s when I lived there, I remember seeing a, uh, uh, a disposable, so-called disposable diaper floating in the ocean. And at that time, I was completely outraged, just completely shattered to think that anyone would allow a diaper, a, a diaper, a dirty diaper, to get into my sacred space, my sacred ocean. Oh, what a mock-up. I, I can't help, uh, as I say, going on. I mustn't vent. Um, I know that most of us... Um, feel the same way. I, I started, what was it, the mess down in La Jolla. I remember looking at the television and thinking that it's not far from a place that I used to live when I was a little kid, <laughs> you know, with some kind of a sinkhole, La Jolla falling into the sea down in Southern California. And then those horrific fires. Uh, anyway, no good tearing out the hair, no good shrieking. All this shoulda, coulda, woulda, you know, a little bit uh, too late, yes, too late, too little, too late. All this BS, this post-disaster carrying on. Uh, for years I will listen to the arguments, you know, 
what was an accident, uh, what was a crime, what's human error, what's just bad luck. Uh, these are all catastrophes waiting to happen. Uh, we know that uh, there's more of these tragedies down the road. It's just, what is it, an accident waiting to happen, we call them. Uh, it's a scenario that uh, is going to come up, used to be, would take weeks, you know, for another tragedy to come along. Now we have the disaster de jour every day. Uh, ah, I think what upset me most, well, the language barrier, the crew on the ship out there, um, apparently, the Chinese crew on the ship. Uh, I suppose we'll be listening to congresspersons fighting for double hulls and all the usual precautions. I did hear a pundit say, uh, I think he was from Canada, he said that there were a number of projected precautions uh, mandated right after the Exxon Valdez smash-up. You remember that was, what, 1989? He said that none of the changes recommended at that time have been put into practice. <laughs> I thought... At the time, back then, Exxon Valdez, I thought, well, now that uh, we've been hit so hard, well, that'll never happen again, you know, never again, never again. Oh, well, uh, I thought the same thing after Bhopal in India and so on and on. Uh, it's funny, um, <laughs> the, the governor, not long ago, yes, before the fires and before the oil spill, uh, Arnold, he said that, of course, we were better prepared here in California, much better than the folks down on the Gulf, you know, the folks that were wiped out by Katrina. Actually, what he was referring to was the fact that uh, it might not be such an economic disaster in California because many Californians actually had a little money in reserve, you know, or some place to go in a crisis, that is to say, they they might have an automobile. Yes, something to live in. Anyway, there's no more real preparedness here than anywhere else. Uh, and, of course, the uh, biblical disasters just keep coming. And the horrific mess on the Black Sea, now aptly named the Black Sea. Uh, I just couldn't look at that one. I tried a couple of times, and uh, then I thought, well, I'll just go back to bed and turn the electric blanket up to nine. Uh, the government's game, of course, is always plausible deniability. I think we have to accept the fact that there is no help coming. We're going to have to take care of ourselves, folks. Uh, the script that the... Uh, what is it, the bureaucracy, the officials have, uh, is just some endless rhetoric. You know, they have to put a, a bright face on things. It reminds me of a script years ago. It was in the Bronx. I remember the local uh, pundits, politicians, they put pictures of flowers on the uh, window shades in the Bronx. Yes, pictures of flowers, and uh, use that to cover the windows. Anyway, uh, it's sickening to hear them, you know, <laughs> talk about, you know, they're, they're going to get psychiatrists and, uh, you know, acupuncturists and 
They're going to hold our hand while we suffer. Anyway, uh, we know that, of course, we do survive natural disasters. Some of us survive. Uh, some people even survive man-made catastrophes like war. But uh, <laughs> it ain't true. It ain't true what Nietzsche says, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. <laughs> I laughed when I thought of Conan the Barbarian as played by Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yes, that movie. Uh, Arnold played Conan the Barbarian and he quoted, yes, Nietzsche, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Ah, oh, no way, Jose. In truth, the, the oil-soaked birds the ones that have been found and cleaned, they have only about a 30% chance of surviving. Uh, this stuff can kill you. <laughs> and, uh, I, I read this week that down there in Louisiana, the recovery rate uh, is not what uh, had been hoped for. In fact, the damage seems to be permanent. Uh, it's more than two years now, and uh, the indications are that those people are worse off today than they were right after Katrina, the hurricane. Uh, the levels of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, are higher now than they were. Uh, bad and badder. Apparently, that particular chunk of the republic is expendable. You know, the 20% of folks at the bottom of the socioeconomic pyramid wash them out to see, uh, I think that they have understood that there is no help coming. Word is to the kitchen gone, and to the trailer parks too, the federal bureaucracy has no good news for you. I see the ghost of Charlie Dickens. I see uh, 19th century Victorians. <laughs> Hypocrites in their own way, as everywhere I look. Actually, I looked very hard at other places on the earth, on the globe, and I thought, taint the 19th century, it's the bloody 9th century. Uh, even here in the U.S. of A., the so-called system gives with one hand and takes away with the other. This shell game, you know. <laughs> if you have a job... Or a little money, or uh, if the insurance pays off, well, then you're on your own, that's it. And if you have enough money, that is, to keep your kids fed, then you have too much money to qualify uh, for health care, health insurance to help your kids if they get sick. <laughs> I guess the absurdo stupidisms are enough to drive any sensible person mad, mad, mad. I was thinking today. Yes, war, war, war. The difficulty right now is in definitions. Uh, I do not know anymore what is a crimescape and what is a wargasm. Everywhere I look, these wargasms. Uh, let me read you a poem by Eliza Griswold. Uh, I've kept this now for a long time. It's an old, let's see, it's in the New Yorker of June 27th, 2005. Here's what Eliza Griswold writes. It's called Buying Rations in Cabal. 
The Uzbek boys on Chicken Street have never had enough to eat. They stock from shelf to shining shelf these GI meals, which boil themselves in added water, bottled please. In twenty minutes, processed cheese on jambalaya, followed by a peanut butter jamboree. The boys, polite, advise on which we might prefer: beef teriyaki, turkey blight, and thank us twice for bringing peace. As meals in hand, we leave the store. Of course. They know that any peace that must be kept by force contains another name. It's war. <laughs> yes, I was thinking of those, those,、uh, yeah, those、um, ready-to-eat meals. That's what we need for Thanksgiving. Yes, indeed.、Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna. Yeah, I go down the street and hand out those、uh, meals,、uh, GI meals. That muck. Anyway,、uh, apparently the food over in、uh, Iraq is much better than、uh, the military fare used to be. As a matter of fact, they say some of it is quite posh. <laughs> All that good stuff in the、uh, in the green zone. I have so many things today. I have eighteen things on my list. That's how, that's how nuts I was last night trying to think what is most important for us all to look at. Let me just give you my list because, of course, I've run out of time before I even got started.、Um, I'm worried about the whales. We're all worried about the whales. Save the whales. Save the males. Let me refer you to an article in the November the fifth New Yorker, November the fifth, two thousand and seven. It's all about a <laughs> a screwball, a pirate who's going to save the whales. The article is called Neptune's Navy, and it's about a guy called Paul Watson. Paul Watson's wild crusade to save the oceans. The article is written by a guy whose name I won't even try to pronounce. I'm going to spell it. First name is Raffi, R-A-F-F-I, and his last name, I believe. Let me try to pronounce it. Kachadurian, K-H-A-T-C-H-A-D-O-U-R-I-A-N. <laughs> anyway, Raffi's written a wonderful article. About a screwball,、um, a guy that、uh, <laughs> there's a picture of him here.、Uh, it looks like a great walrus with gray hair.、Uh, he's out there saving the whales, and、uh, he is apparently a very unorthodox fella.、Uh, he's not speaking to the folks at Greenpeace, and he's been thrown. Well, he quit the、um, Sierra Club.、Uh, <laughs> anyway. He has an organization called the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society. It's a vigilante organization. This is Paul Watson founded it.、Uh, it's been around for thirty years, and his plan is to protect the world's marine life from destructive habits, from the voracious appetites of humankind. Anyway, 
this guy Watson believes in coercive conservation. There's a lot of stuff in this article about uh, a North Sea trawler that he built. It's called the Farley, a rusty old mess. It was built in Norway in 1958, but he has a new new ship. He's transferring all the old stuff to the new ship because the old one's falling apart. Uh, He is ready for a procedure. Uh, He's going to meet the Japanese. He's calling it Operation Asshole. It is named that because it involves ramming one vessel into another's stern. Uh, Anyway, um, let's see. He has rules. He has rules. Uh, He has a sense of morality. He talks about the 1982 United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. Now, that law asserts that sovereign states alone are the ocean's enforcers. Well, he doesn't believe that. He says that whales are more intelligent than people and that their slaughter is tantamount to murder. The Japanese, of course, take a different view. You've heard, I'm sure, that the Japanese are going to uh, use science, yes, <laughs> science, to go out and kill whales. Um, whaling is not technically banned. It's not exactly permitted either. Uh, let's see. There's an ambiguous, there's an ambiguous political compromise. Uh, Let's see, back in 1946, the world's major whaling nations formed something called the International Whaling Commission. And they were supposed to manage the world's whale fisheries, but they did a terrible job. By the 1970s, several species were nearing extinction. So they tried to, they tried to insist that commercial hunts should be halted. This is often referred to as the ban, in quotes, on commercial whaling. But uh, if you're going to be accurate, you have to call it a moratorium. Anyway, several whaling countries have declined to abide by it. So the Japanese have decided that whaling for the take of, sake of science uh, is going to be okay. Yes, uh, no restrictions. They're going to hunt whales off Antarctica in order to ascertain when there will be enough to harvest for profit, okay? In the winter of 2005, the Japanese killed more than a thousand. That's nearly double the commercial catch of Norway. Oh, Norway also rejected the moratorium. The Japanese fleet is run by a government-subsidized institute in Tokyo. Uh, oh, this goes on and on about the Oh, boy, the details, uh, the the gist of it is that there's really no research of any regard. Uh, It's all a hoax. The whales that are purported to be under study are also butchered for the purpose of selling whale meat to the Japanese public. Yes, you're going to see that stuff in the stores. Uh, Anyway, um, this guy Watson, Paul Watson, has decided that uh, he's going to take his fleet, Neptune's Navy, He regards his Navy as a law enforcement agency, and he's going to put a stop to this. At times, Watson loses his cool. Here's what the article says. He told an intransigent captain, we're no protest ship, he said. Get out of here. (laughs) It's not always polite. 
His sense of urgency, his impressive ego, his argumentativeness, his love of theatrics, his tendency to bend the truth, his willingness to risk lives or injury for his beliefs for publicity, and his courage or recklessness have earned him both loathing and veneration from those who are familiar with his activism. Now, this guy, he's been hurt, he's gone to jail... And if you check out the article, you can see what all these folks have to say about him. His uh, his backers, his pals, include Mick Jagger, Sean Penn, Aidan Quinn, William Shatner, Edward Norton, Uma Thurman. Anyway, uh, he's one of the gutsiest guys on the planet, says Martin Sheen. Check it out. It's in the New Yorker. It's November the 5th, 2007. It's called Neptune's Navy. It's all about the guy who's going to go out and uh, <laughs> fight the Japanese over the whales. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back again next week at the same time. Till then, go easy. If you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. melodies of our movements. And again, the name of the drama is freedom. The harmonies of our histories, the political percussions and discordant descants, the sounds that changed the world. All brought to you live here at listener-sponsored radio. Join the Pacifica Radio Network on Tuesday, November 27th, when we open the treasure chest of sounds that changed the world from the Pacifica Radio Archives. Beginning at 7 a.m. Eastern Time on all five Pacifica stations, we'll be treated to the voices of John Coltrane, Rosa Parks, Allen Ginsberg, and many others. We'll all get an opportunity to contribute to the effort to preserve these precious recordings. Don't miss our day-long celebration of the Pacifica Radio Archives, sounds that change the world.